Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's July 23rd, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by Haley Bird and Andrew Egger of the Weekly Standard. Happy Monday. Hello, hello, Charlie. Uh, well, let's, uh, where, where are we going to start off with? Uh, the all-caps tweet, uh, threatening war with Iran. Uh, Paul Manafort goes on trial this week. Let's start instead with the release of that FISA memo over the weekend uh this is we use the word unprecedented a lot but this is literally unprecedented in the entire history of the FISA court we've never seen a document like that it, there was a little bit of a lag time but uh now i see uh, Haley bird that the republicans all have their talking points out saying that uh, that this that this uh this document uh actually backs up the devin nunez memo which is the, the, say is not a not a consensus opinion so what what is your take on what we learned and what we didn't learn from this FISA document? The FISA document basically refutes most of the allegations made in the Nunes memo. Uh, The Nunes memo, for instance, said that the FISA application didn't uh, disclose that the FBI had uh, compensated uh, former spy Chris Steele for information, but the actual application does say that very clearly. Um, it takes up a full page uh, disclosing Steele's possible bias as a footnote, but it's a full page. Uh, you'd have to be pretty stupid to miss that. And uh, they had previously argued that it was, you know, sort of hiding the fact that uh, Steele was being paid by um, people who were looking for opposition on President Trump. Um, so it, it takes an understanding of how to read these documents to understand um, what it's saying and the fact that it's refuting the memo itself, um, and a lot of pundits are not interested in, you know, obtaining that understanding. Well, in, in, including the pundit in chief, the president, who's tweeting out about all of this, and uh, James Holman from the Washington Post said, you know, this is a perfect example of, of why it is so hard to correct misinformation because, as you point out, you actually have to have, you know, put in some effort to read the document, understand, you know, how these documents are put together. They don't actually include people's names. For example, Trump's name is never mentioned he's referred to as candidate number one uh but that does give an advantage to the people who just go out and you know say yes see see devin nunes was right about all of this even though no <laughs> it, it basically you know point by point blows it up now the other point though is that it you know two more points number one there's, there's a lot of uh, redactions from this document so you know anyone who draws an absolute you know, firm line about, you know, what the court was told or what the court wasn't told um, is is getting ahead of themselves. And number two, it seems very clear to me that this document makes it, again, quite clear that the Steele memo was not the only piece of evidence they used to go after Carter Page. Right. Yeah. No. That's 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 definitely true. I mean, Page had been um, a person of interest to uh, you know our, our intelligence agencies for a while, and and he you know he he had already left the the Trump campaign by the time they you know were were applying for a warrant to surveil him. Um, to to take just just a quick step back about what you were mentioning about the disinformation coming out of Trump and Nunes and and all these people. One thing that's really interesting to me is that the, you know the the reason why this is so unprecedented, the reason why we've never had 
of a Freedom of Information Act request turnover FOIA documents before is because this is obviously a secret court. And the, the, the fact that these documents even exist at all, the fact that there are these requests for surveillance at all, is usually you know not, not a matter of public record. But it's the fact that uh, Nunes and, and his guys and Trump, uh, you know, who, who obviously runs the executive branch, um, are were constantly putting out information about this this surveillance request that that made it impossible for uh, for for the Department of Justice to deny uh, that that this you know this uh, this this FOIA. Uh, application had been submitted at all, and then that obviously made it subject to this freedom of information request. So it's just this really interesting thing. Even even before you get to the contents of the of the memo and, uh, and of the the application, um, the the fact that we we got to this partisan place where where um, you know these these political leaders, you know, just sort of hinting about and, and talking around the existence of this thing that, that made it subject to this new uh, and, and like you say, completely unprecedented form of declassifying a, a document like this is really, really remarkable. Exactly. And you had people who, you know, have worked in FISA. You had Francis Townsend come out and say, you know, having run the Justice Department office responsible for FISA, uh, the release of these documents is, quote, irresponsible and will irreversibly weaken counterintelligence and counterterrorism mm. investigations going forward. So it's it's worth asking congressional Republicans whether it was worth it, uh, just looking at this application itself and seeing how it doesn't really, you know, go along with what they had asserted in the memo um, to sort of turn on its head decades of precedent on this. And there's and there's definitely like a, a fault line in sort of different kinds of conservative thought on on FISA, you know, period, right? I mean like the the, the idea that there's, you know, this is one of our intelligence powers and it's really important in national security um, sort of uh, rings bells for, you know, the, the neoconservative uh, national security focus types and then at, at the same time, you know, more uh, individual liberty uh, minded folks, you know, like the the libertarian e types Rand Pauls of the world have have long criticized the, the FISA process specifically for how you know secretive and unaccountable and all of those things it is, and at the same time, you know the the fact that it was um, you know a, a secret and unaccountable process has has been a headache for the Department of Justice for for a long time here, just because they've they haven't really been able to actually make their case. They they you know the, the, because the information is classified or, or was classified until it was released just recently. Um, you know they they haven't really been able to to comment on on these accusations from Nunes and and Trump and everybody, they had to sort of rely on Adam Schiff's uh, competing memo that that tried to debunk a lot of the things that the Nunes memo came out and said. You know, you had Rod Rosenstein coming out and and vouching for you know the integrity of his office, but but in terms of specifics and nitty gritty, you know, they 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 weren't able to actually put the facts out there until recently uh, to show that that Nunes was actually just sort of operating in bad faith and and creating sort of a craven political document around this thing. Okay, but by the way, that's the key phrase. Uh, Andrew is that is that I think this exposes that Devin Nunes was be, was acting in bad faith, and you 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 can just put his statements side by side and and see this. Okay, one other takeaway from the well, maybe two more takeaways since there's so many. Um, it, it seems obligatory to to point out that all of the judges that approved these FISA warrants were appointed by Republican presidents. I raise that because of course this has become a talking point that uh, this investigation is all a you know Democrat uh, witch hunt. The other is, and and I, this is this is kind of the head scratcher. I, we're all talking about Carter Page, and Carter Page is let's say he's kind of a clown, isn't he? It's hard to take, you know, with all of the evidence. And and again, I I I think it was legitimate that they 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 got the warrant uh, that they saw him as you know a potential bad actor. But 
but among the strangest um, misfit toys to uh, to be in this story, he's one of the oddest ducks. Yeah, I and, think and, you know, and this is this is the one. This is the one defense from Trump world that I think is plausible, which goes something like, you know, there was no collusion because these folks were too goofy to collude. And think, and who is goofier than Carter Page? I think that well, Carter Page is the is the, the perfect sort of figurehead for for you know the the, the Trump or the uh, the Russia investigation at large, right? Because he's, he's a figure that has been sort of imbued with these with this sort of really uh, sinister and kind of uh, you, you know ominous uh, sort of sort of role in in the eyes of you know people who think that that this Trump Russia collusion thing goes way back and you know that he's a secret agent or a, a sleeper agent and and all that. Whereas in reality, the, it, it, it seems far more likely that he was just sort of this bumbling oaf that that Russian intelligence realized they could take advantage of, uh, did take advantage of, and and that sort of rolled into uh, it's it's a metaphor for the whole thing, you know. I mean, like it's 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 less likely that that Trump and Co were you know secretly uh, conspiring really competently behind the scenes to advance Russian uh, interests, and more likely that 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 Russian interests just sort of caught the wave of this sort of oafish buffoonish uh, run and 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 sort of twisted that to their own ends. I, I think one more important thing to note in all of this is that, you know, you have Republicans saying uh, this doesn't prove that Page was working with the Russians and it's not um, a heavy enough weight of evidence to do this, mm-hmm. support this surveillance order. Um, but w- with FISA intelligence, the way that they look at it is you're looking for probable cause. You're not looking for a beyond reasonable reasonable doubt standard, uh, which is a huge difference. So it, it doesn't have to be 100% correct in in the application itself Um, but if you have probable cause which is very clearly demonstrated in the application then that's what they're actually looking for right and and of course that's That's the standard right i mean of of course you're you're asking for uh permission to surveil you're asking for permission to be able to gather evidence to to demonstrate that this person's an agent and 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 one other thing that that is not has not gotten commented on a, a whole lot in terms of this this application is that what what was released uh just a couple of days ago is not only the initial application but it's several applications to renew uh, the, their surveillance on Carter Page, and every time they uh, they are applying for for a you know a, a, a renewal, um, the, the the information that they provide uh, to convince the judge that they should be able to keep surveying it gets bigger. You know, there's there's more yeah. Yeah. redacted text in each of those uh, you know reapplications uh, to to say you know here's what we here's the reasons why we think that Carter Page has been compromised by Russian intelligence, and there's more to, and you know, it's in a a certain sense, it's an argument from silence because it is redacted stuff. But there's more there. You know, the, the judge is seeing like that there's three paragraphs in the first application to like 30 pages of redacted text in the last. Yeah, it's, it's really remarkable. That, that that would I would think would cause some of the the, the rationalizers and the defenders to uh, to you know slow walk this because they don't know what they don't know. Now speaking of misfit toys, the other development over the last uh, several days since we talked last uh, was uh, the revelation that Michael Cohen apparently um, had a, has an audio tape of a conversation with Donald Trump where they discussed payoffs to uh, Playboy playmate uh, Karen McDougal. Um, you know, I have two takeaways from from that, or maybe again, since I've been so bad on on, on numbers today, they, we we don't know what's on the tape. Rudy Giuliani says it's exculpatory. I wouldn't take that at face value. But what's really obvious, though, is that Michael Cohen is breaking hard and bad on Donald Trump. 
And, you know, who knows where that's going to go? Because of, of, of all the people in all of these scenarios who probably know a lot of stuff about Donald Trump, you'd have to put Michael Cohen at the top of that, at the top of the list. And, you know, whether it's this story about the tape or this this sort of image rehabilitation tour that he's on, which includes bizarrely enough, apparently he had breakfast with Al Sharpton. Did you hear this? I mean, he's, he's yes. hanging out with Al Sharpton. <laughs> Uh, because 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 that's what's going to restore his credibility, right? Michael Michael Cohen, maybe it's an indication of his worldview that he goes, okay, how can I, you know, make myself look better? I'm I'm going to hang out with Al Sharpton, and, and it's it's you know, and and Tom Arnold. That, well, that's that's how I'm going to you know fix my fix my image. And did you did you see that Michael Avenetti is now predicting a face turn from 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 Cohen? He's like, yeah, he's a we, we really think he's going to do the right thing and come around and, and be on our fight for the good of the company. I it's like the most ludicrous stuff ever. But yeah, this is the, the story is completely wild. It is baffling it, it, that he took the recordings in the first place, though. Yes. What is like, with that? That is baffling to me. And it almost just seems as like this very public show of blackmail from Cohen. Um it's it's just fascinating. I don't even know what he's trying to get. I don't know if he wants to be pardoned for something, but it's very strange that he. Well, I, th- I think we're pa- I think we're past the pardon um, era because I mean he's there. There's clearly I mean there's going to be some serious bad blood there. Just like I- anyone, you know, who basically said, by the way, uh, Haley, I I taped our conversation that we had last night. I mean, whoa, <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of a fundamental betrayal from somebody who had been within you know one of the very few people who at least the impression was that he was in that sort of zone of trust that very small circle of of of, of trump trust well and charlie i this is a a thing that i've sort of harped on on the podcast before but it, it, when stories like this come out you want you want to take like donald trump by his shoulders and shake him and say you know you, you're a very rich man hire good competent lawyers hire hire regular people who yeah they're going to charge you like a lot of money because they're really good and professional they're not going to, you know, uh, take, you know, Wendy's coupons and, and, and gift certificates for the Trump International Hotel in, in lieu of pay, paycheck like Michael Cohen might have. But but I mean, like, you're not going to have problems like this if you just go to a regular law firm and hire regular people to do your legal defense. And it's it just this is the Trump world thing that we see constantly is that all of these people who are who are his hangers on and people in his inner and his not quite so inner circle are just the, they're, they're goofs. They're they're they're. They're, they're they're nonsensical people all of the time, and it's going to hire the best. Yeah, I mean, it's the best people. And by the way, speaking of the best people, I'm, now I'm going to s- switch gears. The you know over the last week after the fiasco in 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 Helsinki, you know, I, I think you know we got a renewed sense of how important it is that people like you know Jim Mattis are still on the job. You know, even Mike Pompeo, that you still have these these grown ups in the room. Um, what did you make of Dan Coates uh, going rogue in Aspen last week, though? And and then basically walking it back and saying, no, no, I'm still a loyal team member. Anybody want to try that one? I just, when when you have your, your, yeah, you're the director of national intelligence who apparently had no idea that uh, the president had reinvited Vladimir Putin to come to uh, Washington, D.C. You would think that would be something that he'd be, I don't know, that he'd be in the circle of trust, that he'd be in the loop on something like that. I mean, the, the most interesting thing to me was Saturday when he came out with this statement saying, you know, my response at the Aspen Security Conference was uh, admittedly awkward, and I had not meant to disrespect the president or, like, split with him in any way. Um, it almost read like a statement that had been written by the White House press shop itself. Um, and, you know, what his comments at that forum were 
you know, seen as problematic by the White House comms uh, people, <laughs> of <mildly>. course. <laughs> but to put it mildly, um, but there's this really fascinating debate going on between, you know, different corners of the national security and, you know, intelligence world about whether he should have stepped down um, and resigned in protest after Helsinki. Because right now, the, the path he's going down right now is you didn't step up when you were supposed to and stand up for the intelligence community when the president publicly said your name and then sided with Vladimir Putin in public at a press yeah. conference. You didn't step up then, but you waited. And now you're gonna, just going to get fired after the time when you could have made it like a real statement. Right. Um, well, well and, he'll be he'll be insulted and humiliated and, and then probably <laughs> he'll be fired. Like fired over Twitter. So yeah, it, it's a question of how much impact he was looking to have because, he, you know, he did that statement after the, the press conference where he said, you know, that we stand by the intelligence community. Um, but he didn't specifically name Trump. And it wasn't very um, it, it spoke volumes in the sense that the statement was even written, but it didn't um, directly address the problem. OK, so now, Haley, I, I had a piece in uh, in The New York Times yesterday where I suggested that this would be a good time for congressional Republicans to remember that they're not constitutional potted plants, that they have tremendous influence, that there are things that they could do uh, to to put pressure on the White House on, on, on foreign affairs, things like, you know, for example, you know, passing that uh, the Flake Coons resolution. Uh, you know, reaffirming support for the intelligence community. Um, uh, Weekly Standard had suggested a censure, which I think is highly unlikely, uh, legislation that might trigger sanctions. But look, I'm not naive. You, you're, you hang around these folks all the time. Congress is not actually going to step up and do anything meaningful, are they? No. Or will they do something that will at least look like that? I mean, they'll, they will, they'll probably pass that Flake Coons thing, wouldn't they? I mean, isn't that, isn't that de minimis? Isn't that the, 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 the lowest possible thing they could do? I mean, you had, I think John Cornyn was sort of shooting that down over last week at the end of the week yeah. saying, you know, we'd like to go to committee on that and actually, because the, the Flake Coons thing um, involves having the translator uh, who was actually in that closed door meeting come to Congress and either like do hearings or a briefing or something no, to tell them what actually happen. went down, which is not going to happen. No. But um, so that I think that's the most controversial part of that resolution. Um, Andrew, didn't you write about a, a resolution on Friday that they passed? Yeah, I, I, I would I would push back a little bit against that, Charlie. Yeah. I, I think that I mean, yes, it's it. We would we would in a perfect world we would like to see you know more stiff necked resistance from. Uh, from especially Republican congressional leaders when when President Trump does things like this. And we did see a lot of, you know, uh, veiled criticism of of Trump's uh, Helsinki summit from from a, a lot of Republican leaders. You know, they, they didn't actually call out the president, but they made their disapproval clear. And I think that what, what we need to realize is, is if we look at this from the perspective of Vladimir Putin, right, what, what matters to Vladimir Putin is not so much that that Republicans scold Donald Trump in the right ways or or fail to do so, right? What, what Vladimir right. Putin wants is for is for him to be able to you know, twist these pressure points and 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 manipulate the United States in such a way uh, that that we cancel the sort of isolated uh, isolating economic policies that we already have in place against Russia um, and that we you know ha- have had in, in place against Russia since their annexation of Crimea a few years back and that that have only increased under President Trump I think I think it, that the White House is right to point out um, frequently that that Trump has actually in, in, as a matter of policy been pretty hard on Russia and and yes obviously that is grudging on the part of 
the president himself. A lot of that is the people around the president. And a lot of that is Congress. I mean, you remember just last year, we we, we passed almost unanimously through the Senate um, big new sanctions on Russia to punish them for election meddling. And those sanctions are still on the table. And, and, and right. Congress has actually taken away some of the president's power to meddle with those sanctions. So even so these- a good example of when they, they, could, they can do something. Yeah. yeah well, well, even these non-binding resolutions that are passed um, to, to that, that essentially just say, you know, we believe that election meddling happened or we support the intelligence community or whatever, you know, those those don't do anything new in the present. Um, but at the same time, they send a signal to Vladimir Putin that that Congress at least still ha- still has you know, clear eyes about what Russia, what Russia's aims are in the world. Um, and, at, and, and we don't need to pass, you know, new, you know, even more crippling sanctions every single time uh, there is Russia related news on the world stage. If we if we maintain the sanctions that we have, that's the that's the big thing. You know, it's it's the the danger is not that you know we're not going to do anything new. The danger is that President Trump will become convinced that we no longer need these things on Russia, and that he will put pressure on Congress uh, to to remove these sanctions. Like that would be the 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 problem. But we have not yet seen an indication that Congress. Uh, at least in this one point, is willing to just sort of bend over uh, backwards for the impulses of Donald well, Trump. Well, I, I, I do think it would be worthwhile doing something that might act as a deterrent, because one of the, I think, one of our main concerns ought to be, you know, has, has President Trump's body language and his rhetoric emboldened the Russians to think that that if they if, if they if they up their game, uh, they up the attacks on on the election process, that there will be no more consequences. I, I do think. That that something going forward on this now, Haley. Again, it is something I'm sure you get asked a lot because you know what are Republicans saying in private about the last week? You know, even in contrast to, I mean, I, there there have been public comments, there have been tweets, there have been statements about it, um, but but in private, what is the mood on Capitol Hill about what we've seen play out over the last I don't know ten days? I mean, they're they're very clearly frustrated. Um, you know, you've seen with this president things like endorsing Roy Moore and, you know, saying that both sides were good after Charlottesville. So, that, like, they know that he can do things like this. Um, but I, they were surprised because a lot of effort from the White House staff went into telling Trump to be tougher on Putin uh, with the Helsinki summit. And he just threw it out the window. Um, and I think they were surprised to, like, the extent to which he did that, um, publicly siding with Putin on the intelligence community analysis. Um, in private, I think clearly there's more vulgarity, um, in their (laughs) statements, I would say, um, it's, it's just a frustration because you, you come out with these statements saying, you know, we oppose this or, uh, the president is wrong, but in private, like they would prefer for like Mike Pence knows the truth about like, it's, it's just confusing because the president has walked back his walkbacks and he's walked back his other walkbacks. And so they, they don't trust much coming from the White House officially at this point. Yeah. And, and, and yet they see the same things we see that 79 percent of Republicans were completely fine with what happened in Helsinki. So you're an elected Republican. You have clear eyes about what actually happened. But um, clearly that would be, you know, the the level of political risk would be substantial to uh, to be too vocal about it, considering that the Republican base is all in on all of this. And by the way, so how do you guys explain that? How do you, because I get asked this question all the time, how do you explain that 
79% of Republicans watched Donald Trump stand on that stage and instead of go America first, he went, you know, blame America first. You know, instead of instead of standing up for his country, he throws his country under the bus in the, in the presence of Vladimir Putin. And nearly 80% of Republican voters in this country went, yeah, this is this is good. We're okay. I mean, you, you can self-select your media channels. You know, I mean, if mm-hmm. if you if you want, if if, if your inclination, if you if you're if you expect uh, that that President Trump is usually right about these things, then you're going to pay more attention to people who say that President Trump is usually right about these things, and the people who say that President Trump is usually right are all the same people who say that he's always right, and so you, that's the diet you get. I mean, I think it's as simple yeah. as that. Is it as simple as that, or 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 is it just simply that we've become so tribal and the people are just in that they're just not gonna, you know? Yeah, I think I think those <laughs> are not, two sides fly. of the same coin, right? Yeah, they they are a little bit uh, two sides of the same coin. Okay, uh, in the in the uh, couple of minutes that we have uh, left here, uh, the uh, uh, president all cap tweets about Iran, um, very very bellicose. So this seems to be a go to thing for him talking about war with Iran. Is this uh, is this a distraction? Is this a prelude to doing what he did with North Korea? Why are we talking about Iran this morning? Does anybody know? Uh, well, it's, it's funny. If you go back and look at his old tweets, he had mentioned back in like 2013 or 2014 or even previously that President Obama would, quote, go to war uh, with Iran to win his election. Um, it, it, so I think President Trump sees this as like a political cal- calculus. You know, when you have uh, bad press coming in that you want to sort of distract from that and turn the firepower somewhere else. Um, and it's you have to look back on Kim Jong-un when he basically threatened nuclear war with him as well. And now months later, he says he's a very funny guy with a great personality. Yeah, so. they're, they're, they're great, Buzz. We'll talk about that uh, some other time. Hey, thanks for joining me on a Monday morning. I appreciate it very, very much. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. and We'll do this all over again.